From City Bridges, this is Randy Bartlett, and this is We Make the Road by Walking, the podcast where I talk with people from all walks of life about the paths they have traveled and what they have learned along the way. So, summer is arriving here in Pittsburgh, and we're going to continue with our episodes of We Make the Road by Walking throughout the summer. We have a lot of great folks coming up to share their stories with you. Uh, We have a wonderful person sharing their story this week. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe. Please give us a five-star rating. Share it with your friends and neighbors. Positive comments uh, really helps us grow our audience. And if you have a story you want to share, please reach out. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. I'm really excited about our uh, guest that we have this week. We've actually, we were talking the other day and realized that we have known each other uh, now for a decade, which uh, makes us both feel young and and sprightly, I'm sure. Um, But since we're here, uh, could you take a minute to introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Sure, sure. Well, my name is Kim Nolan. And what I do right now is live in that liminal space between things. Um, I was for the last four years, a position they called head of people and culture, um, which I secretly thought of as an organizational chaplain, but I didn't tell anyone that at a food co-op in Burlington, Vermont, and moved that company into a multi-store format and reached my goals and oddly learned how to negotiate union contracts and a whole bunch of things I didn't expect to learn, but, but all with good mission. So I was good with that. And I had made the decision to leave on March 13th before there was COVID. So I literally had the good fortune of leaving the food industry right as things exploded for food industry workers. So I still don't know if that makes me brilliant or a traitor. And right now Gosh, what has it been? Two months that we've all been cooped up. Um, I really took the first month and put myself on personal retreat. And that consisted of a lot of what I call cushion time, meditation, uh, yoga, and just, you know, doing stuff to um, replenish very depleted energy reserves. I had given quite a bit to that last job. Just now lifting my gaze to say, okay, universe, what next? There are a few opportunities. One, interestingly, as we've spoken about, is um, school director for a progressive independent school here in Vermont. Another is a wink-wink kind of organizational chaplain. Uh, and a few other things that are floating around, some, some family foundation opportunities. So I'm usually doing something that's about um, change management, and I'm sure wherever I land, that trail will follow me. So yeah, that's what I do. That's me right now. As the head of a progressive independent school, uh, I can say that is an incredibly hard but incredibly rewarding possible path. I really live my life by like feet first down the river and see where I'm guided. I mean, my brain works and I can assess and do appraisals of situations, but I really let that flow happen. And You know, that rewarding word that you just use is really one of the measurements on my yardstick of, is this going to work out for me? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really an incredible path to take. I actually, before this conversation was uh, talking with a a student um, and this is a podcast and she and I are talking now 
about doing a podcast. We were having this conversation. She's one of those people who sort of takes in an incredible amount of information about fascinating things. And she was telling me all about the Wizard of Oz as like an American fairy tale and the uh, some of the symbolism that's in there. And I, I said, I said to her, like, this is what we should put on a podcast. I like, I learned so much in the last 20 minutes from all of this stuff you just threw out there. So that's um, awesome. If, if you go that track, I'll do that with you for Alice in Wonderland. I did a whole Jungian analysis on that film. Awesome. Well, I'm going back like decades, but <laughs> I think, I think I can pull out the major themes. Yeah. Well, speaking of going back at least a decade, when you were talking about change management, we met in the context of uh, we were both part of the same doctoral cohort in Antioch's leadership and change program was a wonderful experience. And I met a lot of wonderful people through that. What was your path from where you were as a teenager to then us meeting, you know, many years later as a doctoral student and now mm-hmm. where you are? Like, I'd yeah. love, to, love to hear that story. You know, it's funny. I just told part of this the other day and it starts off it's interesting. It's a little sad that I, um, in high school, in the afternoons of my senior year, I and my best friend would walk to the neighborhood elementary school and we would do a, an internship of teaching. She in second grade, me in a, um, a one, two class loved it as a little, little kid. I knew I was going to go to the university of Vermont for college. I have no idea how I knew that, but I knew it. And that's where I went. And I went in the beginning as a, um, education major. So I'm I going on a little tangent. I know. Did I didn't you know this. No. <laughs> well, it didn't last long. Here's the sad story. So I grew up in a way that I like to define as dumb and happy. I don't know what my wiring is. I just things, I was pretty laid back about most things. Anyway, so I am in college. It's freshman year, first semester, and I have to write a paper on my educational philosophy on a computer mm-hmm. the size of like both our heads <laughs> next to each other. Huge. So I'm typing it and I'm pulling like John Dewey and I'm pulling Leo Biscaglia and humanistic psychology. And, oh, I think I am like, I should be. It's a good thing I'm in college. Like I am nailing this. I present it. I'm so thrilled that I've been able to articulate, you know, my belief in, you know, whole person education that each student is its own miracle of a, an entity and to, you know, celebrate that and this, that, and the other. <laughs> I get paper back. I get a fine grade. At the end of class, the teacher says, um, Kim, would you, um, would you come back to my office? I'd like to talk to you. And still, I'm 18, so I'm still dumb and happy. I'm like, yeah, of course, because you probably want to tell me I'm a genius. <laughs> Go back. You know, and I don't mean that arrogantly. I just mean like this is so – I was so excited to be learning and that I was able to put my thoughts down and synthesize these other great thinkers. <clears throat> it's like, you know, your paper was really interesting. I'm like, thanks, thanks. It was fun to put together. I was like, is that really your educational philosophy? I was like, yeah, that was the assignment. That's what I wrote. I'm like, hmm. I'm going to suggest you change your major. If that's what you think about education, you're going to be eaten alive. I had no idea how to make sense of that. I walked back to my dorm room so downtrodden, like, what? To see children as whole individuals and try to teach to the whole child is a bad idea? What? So I give that as a little base. Mm -hmm. Um, 
as I finished up college, I ended up designing my own major. And I think it's absolutely phenomenal because I started living my educational philosophy of I'm going to, or my parents, we're going to all pay all this money. What do I want to study into what trajectory? So I combined religion and philosophy and education and wellness and um, looked at human development. It was phenomenal. Basically study of human consciousness. It's fun. And I had a bucket list goal to be a ski instructor. So I took the next year to ski instruct while I got into graduate school, which I went down to Boston for in counseling psychology. And I'll just kind of run through it because it's kind of, it's interesting for anyone looking ahead in their life. You can't predict certain things um, beyond ski patrol. I had kind of like, I don't know, I'll do whatever, you know, as long as it's good work, good people, I'm, you know, or I don't have to do brain surgery. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I can learn. So after graduate school, I ended up taking a big left turn and did commercial mortgage banking, partnered with Wall Street, not the usual outcome of a counseling degree. Did that for a while, ended up backing kind of the human service work afterwards, worked with uh, homeless teens and, and independent skill acquisition and just transition age stuff. Really good, solid work. These were good kids that just needed that extra support. Uh, moved through and moved into a um, community-based mental health program, and I directed that for a while. Interestingly, along the way, I started being an adjunct professor at a local small college because I had some academic training, but I also had professional experience, and I loved it. And I'm not at that point, I'm not thinking back to that professor in my freshman year. I'm just thinking, like, this is awesome. Fast forward, um, there was some hospice work that I had done as a volunteer and always had a slight calling toward death and dying, which is not something you readily admit to most people. That'll really end a cocktail party conversation quickly. Um, but that work was really important to me. And because of that, I went on to study to be a Buddhist chaplain, and I was ordained. And right after that, I moved into um, our work at Antioch. At that point, I was still at that small college, and I'm sure between teaching transpersonal psychology and studying to be a Buddhist chaplain, it, I was primed to go into our studies. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of my research was on, you know, the, that Venn diagram of leadership and change theory, advocacy, positive psychology, and some wisdom traditions. So again, here I am looking at the whole person. When I was at the small college, we did narrative evaluations and looking at the whole student. Uh, you know, Antioch has a particular flavor that embodies some of my philosophies. So whatever that man said or didn't say, um, I still lived it out. I will add in, um, while doing the chaplaincy work, and this was, I was probably about 40 at that time. I worked, I was in Vermont, and I was working with the South Burlington School District. And part of my chaplain studies and I brought that, I was doing an internship and brought it into the school system to bring in mindfulness. And we started with the teachers, kind of a care for the care provider model. Uh, mindfulness is wellness, resilience, restoration, those words. And then over the course of a couple of years, we expanded that program. And so this was all on the side for me. Um, we expanded it to include the students, which was unbelievable and beautiful and you know gave them a lot of leeway to take the lead they're very natural 
And this ran K through 12. When I say school district, I mean everyone included. And then we opened it even further to parents and guardians. I will tell you the happy part of that story is that program has remained in the school budget. So when people in that town vote each year for the school budget, they are still saying an affirmative for that kind of work for their their students and themselves. So when I was doing chaplaincy and getting engaged with this care, the care provider model, I had been in mental health and overseeing that work and having teams of dozens of people. And I did start taking that model on myself of looking after my team so they could best look after their assigned clients or the families they worked with. So I designed a thing, um, just sole proprietorship, but it's called the Dignity Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still have that today. And it's under that umbrella that I'll do things like mindful leadership coaching or mentoring or care the care provider workshops. I've gotten to do that mostly up and down the East Coast. I did one in Colorado, but it's really been more local. And as a chaplain, I do, I officiate ceremonies and weddings. Um, and that all falls under that Dignity Foundation. And then came, let's see. Okay, I'll, I'll keep going. Uh, so we had Antioch. After that, I had a year where I got to work under the Dalai Lama for the Mind and Life Institute. And I put together an academy for contemplative and ethical leadership, which is a really fascinating experience. And I ran the master's program at Lesley University in mindfulness studies. And then I moved into the food co-op and HR and people and culture. So, I mean, really super varied experience. It's been my work to understand what are the common threads and the common Mm -hmm. denominators. You know, I say I follow the flow and do feet first, but I'm not, you know, there's certain jobs I just wouldn't be attracted to and it wouldn't happen. And, you know, where I said in my doctoral studies, there was a Venn diagram Well, my professional life, you know, leadership, advocacy, education, that's the Venn diagram of the work that I do. Mm-hmm. You know, the arenas change, but the work is kind of similar. Yeah, it is. It is interesting to think about what those threads are. Um, and frankly, mm-hmm. to, you know, to give some credit where credit is due, the, the process that was involved in the Antioch program was helpful, uh, at least giving a space for me personally to mm-hmm. um, try to spin some of those threads together, uh, yeah. you know, where I realized that I, I'm always inspired by and sort of striving to uh, create humane learning communities that enable people Mm -hmm. to have the sort of agency to explore the possible futures that they seek out, but not in a sort of individualistic way, but in a, in Mm -hmm. a communal way. Um, Well, and add to that. I mean, I so agree with you, the communal, you know, safe container for a lot of brains going at once but that reflective piece to our scholarship, you know, adding in that self-awareness and, you know, and inward for me, but then looking outward for a we of like, how does this connect out there? And what are the, you know, the connective tissues to this being that we're creating, whether it's a new idea or a new concept. Yeah. So that part's been super, it's been fun. It's been really fun. And I think that paper that I wrote freshman year You know, going to Antioch just became an extended process of a similar paper. Like, let me articulate meaning I've made thus far and synthesize these different thinkers from different disciplines and and give myself a revised foundation 
so I'm clear of my stance, you know, that also helps me not just navigate that feet first image, but also to bring some ethics and some boundaries um, in interactions and decisions and what I will stand for, what I won't stand for. I think, you know, as we go through our career path, we bump up against things that can easily seem okay. And sometimes we have to step back and be like, wait, whoa, maybe it's legally okay, but where does that reside in my heart? Where am I going to sleep okay tonight if I have X conversation or do Y behavior? One of the things that, that is so great about your story and your path is that it, it has uh, so many things that have unfolded along the way. How, as each of those sort of inflection points have come, how have you made those decisions about what, what is true to you and what you will do and what you won't do? What's your process for that? Because I think that's so valuable for people to contemplate. I think it's important and I think it's not talked about very often. And you're, I wish, you know, I'm glad you and I can see each other, but I know it's audio, but I'm going to remind you of my little truth tattoo on my arm. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me a little sad. And as a parent, you know, I've made a real hard and conscientious effort to make sure my daughter understands those kind of process. Like, where are you? How's that resting? When you feel things in your belly, how do you, you know, I ask her a lot of questions and inquiry around how do you know? So I kind of made it up along the way, you know, just to kind of name that. And I think, you know, in some inventories I measure out as an empath. Um, in some circles, uh, the word intuitive comes up. Uh, I still put it in dumb and happy. Like I really kind of measure, how does this feel? I know when something's a hit in a good aligned way immediately. I think we all do. And so sometimes when I can't see it immediately, that when I just said to you earlier, reflective scholar, that reflective piece, if it's not a crisis and I'm not clear, then I will request time to think on it. So that's one of the initial steps. And then try to, in that silence, listen to and feel into how's it, what's this feel like? And that training we've experienced of, in a system th- thinking way, kind of how does this then connect out into the horizon? If it feels good for me today in a month, what might this be connected to? Or uh, a job, we restructured the food co-op. I got a promotion out of that. Okay, great. I didn't have to think twice about that. Loving that idea, but wait a minute, others weren't. And let me and I had to walk those pieces out and just kind of foresee, again, look out into the horizon and anticipate outcome. No, I mean somebody being upset doesn't change things, but how did it feel in a in a just and fair way? Um, it's not, I'm not going out and reading a book on Socrates or some other like philosophical way of making an ethical decision, but, um, I am taking time to measure and lean into, um, as I said, at the onset, you know, I'm looking at some job offers and I'm really having to lean into like, where's the difference of compensation versus good work in the world? Mm-hmm. Where's the difference between a, a, you know, a burning building that I might be running into versus a really kind of easier job because it's well-established. And just giving myself, literally writing out a permission slip to say, you're not in a rush. You know, if I have to make up June 15th, fine, I'll pick that arbitrary date to say, give yourself one month to think through your options and really, really, and try them on. There have been other ethical things in work where bosses have asked, like, I need you to have a certain conversation or let go of this person. And I've had actually a 
flip it. We were going to hire someone. And mm. I did not think it was the right person. And at this point, I was director of HR. So the hiring letter would come from me. And I went to my boss and said, general manager, and said, You're going to, it's your final decision. I have no say in that. I will tell you, I'm not writing the offer letter. Go ahead and hire him. And I'll work great. Like, I'm not going to get in the way or create an obstacle, but I will not put my name on that letter. And he, it was like, what? And the, it ended up, you know, of course, I love the story because I was right. But <laughs> um, I had to get clear enough and then have confidence enough and the courage to speak that, you know, what we can easily slide into the rabbit hole of gender inequities. And, you know, as a female talking to my male boss, the fears that came along with it and having to make sure I wasn't compromising my values. That's, that's how I sleep at night. I mean, it's ultimately the test. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Can, can you live with yourself with the decisions that you made? Not yeah. in a sort of uh, abstract way, but in a very present way. Like can Very you, present. Yeah. yeah. If I'm up at 2 a.m. for the whole week, that's an indicator like, oh, something's running through my head, not in a good way. I made a decision as hard as it may have been, but I'm like, good night. And I'm all ready to sleep. Um, There's a, I'm at ease about something. And again, like keep it to context. This isn't about hiding a dead body or like, you know, selling drugs or something like, no, no, no. Let's keep it to context. These are all within, but they're real. And no one told me about this. So there's a little bit of, um, naiveness on my part. Even when I worked in Wall Street, what were hard decisions were blatant and explicit. Nobody was trying to pull the wool over my We knew the game we were playing. Um, but it's some of the more nuanced and subtle ways that we just as humans are fallible and things happen and we have to know, you know, it'd be the same if you're going down the river, there's a little eddy and how do you see the signs of it and you know, move over to the side. I'm really milking this uh, river metaphor as much as I can. <laughs> so along that, that journey, I mean, I think one of the things you alluded to yeah. this before, but I'd love to hear more about it. Um, but, you know, one of the things that you talked about uh, is how, uh, you know, so many of the opportunities that arose for you or the, um, the sort of paths that you could have chosen and chose to walk down and create or chose not to, yeah. um, weren't necessarily things that you uh, intentionally planned out. Um, yes. And yet, how do you create for yourself, or maybe you don't, um, the circumstances in your life where opportunities might arise? And then maybe the more important question is, how do you um, see those opportunities when they arise and, and be mm. ready to take them? Yeah, I think the second question's really got the juice for me. I, I don't know how to create that. I'm, I'm not that smart. But I can be present and awake when things arise to take notice. And so, you know, being a Buddhist chaplain means I've spent a lot of time on the cushion. And you, cult, you know, there, there's a lot of awareness practice and cultivating the skills to be aware. You know, as I said, I'm empathic. I'm intuitive. Those things are fine, lovely. But being aware, um, being able to read certain scenarios is really, for me, the place of being able to take note, like, huh, this might work. I could try this. You then throw in a little personality. You know, I I was a kid in the 70s. So, you know, my favorite T-shirt that I wore out was from my mother. And it said, uh, anything boys can do, girls can do better. 
So, you know, this was the ERA fighting, you know, first women, a woman to run for vice president. Like that, that was empowering for me. I mean, I, you know, I, I will tell you, this is a tangent, but it connects. In, I became school president in elementary school. Uh, I ran against my friend since first grade, Michael, and I beat him. And the principal at the time said, maybe we should be co-presidents because there'd never been a female president before. And I was like, um, isn't this really about like selling boxes of chocolate and getting new sweatshirts for the students? Like, I don't think it's that complicated. So you have to keep in mind, I have this um, a little bit of a fire in me. And I also have a fire for lineage. So I'm very cognizant of the women that came before me and doing what I can to break through ceilings for the women to come after me. So my motivation to be super aware is really heightened. So doing things where other women, I'm just still in that age bracket that sometimes I'm the first woman to do something. Um, and I, I keep a watchful eye for that. Or I'm the next generation of a woman and we're going to do, the first one had to be a little more aggressive to break through and now I can show a different way of leading. Um, and when I said before, my Venn diagram, education, leadership, and advocacy, this is how they start, you know, rolling together. So coupled with, like, I get bored. <laughs> I'm in something too long. Like, you know, again, you know, keeping in mind change management. So I'm going in there. I'm seeing what we can do in the situation to improve efficiency or culture or rapport. And I strategize that and you execute it and then you stabilize it. And for me, that's when you pass it on to the next person. And I left the co-op because it was time for others to step up. I'd achieved my goals. It was fine. So having a sense of timing is really a key factor in this. I don't know how to define that. I can say that, but I don't really know exactly what I mean. I know it's critical, but I, it's not go get your timer watch going. It's not that or set your alarm. It's just having a sense of timing and knowing when to step in and when to step out. Um, and, and that's a really hard thing to learn. Yeah. Like I, I absolutely have not gotten that right all the time or most of the time in my career. Yeah. And it is, it's one of those really intangible, really yeah. tricky things. And some of it is easiest seen, you know, only in hindsight, right? As oh, hun- oh that's yeah. 2020. Everyone's got that one. Well, when we were at Antioch together and you remember when I was in the college, I had so many concerns. And when I would try to speak up about it, kind of got poo-pooed and I had a sense of timing to leave and then soon after the college closed down, you know, that's one of those, like I had really good timing, but that's a poopy ending of a story, <laughs> you know, like, Oh, I didn't, you know, sometimes you don't want to be right. We're humans. We just do the best we can. So having a sense, you know, that's why I'm like, have a sense of it. Those permission slips to ourselves are really, really important. So we're not uh, beating ourselves up that like, Ooh, I missed it. Or it should have been six months sooner. Like, you know, we do the best. I get easily bored, but I also want to have fun. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm going to put in 50, 60 hours of a week, I better be enjoying I don't mind hard work. It better just also be fun. That's a, a leftover from the dumb and happy childhood. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's something I really appreciate about you. I like, I'm jumping back now to yeah. being like a doctoral colleague. Um, is that there, like you did, like it was hard work. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's oh, a doctoral yeah. program. It's supposed to be hard work. But you you did bring a sort of joy to it um, and a happiness to it, which uh, as a as a 
cohort member, colleague, friend was really helpful. Um, That's nice to hear. Yeah, no, it's true. Some of it is like what you put out is what you get back. Uh, And so I'm like, I'm wondering back to the question around how do you create those situations? Um, I, at Mm. least for me, I think you, Mm. you, there's something very open and joyful, but also um, contemplative that, that, like that you put out there that was helpful for me as a well it's not lost on me that my dissertation starts off with the title of laughing buddhas (laughs) you know i'm a fan of like yeah we're you know when we're at ease a lot more can be accomplished and and probably through buddhist studies you know i also have a jewish mom and a catholic dad so you know those type of wisdom traditions or spiritual paths have been curious for me my whole life no pressure from my parents at all, but um, I've been curious. And in those pathways of study, the notion of like, we have a precious human birth, don't squander, I really take to heart. And I think when I was a little one, I had some childhood illnesses. And, you know, like all kids, the minute you feel better, you bounce back and off, you go and play. But I lost some time and that not in a way of, no pity or sad. Like, I don't think I was sad, but it gave, and that's where I started learning reflective practices. And so early on, just being so damn happy every day, you wake up and you're like, I get another one. Nice. What are we going to do today? You know, and that may be sit in a hammock and read, or it might be, let's build a new company or, you know, whatever it ends up looking like. But, you know, I showed you my joy tattoo. I mean, my truth tattoo. I've got a joy one on this arm. So <laughs> I've got the right words on my body. All right. Truth and joy. I think that, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So on this journey of, of truth and joy that you've led, yeah. um, what are some of the lessons that you have learned that you think are worth sharing with some young people who might be, you know, standing on the, the bow of that ship and looking out over the... Yeah the sort of, you know, roiling sea and trying to figure out what they're going to do. Yeah. I mean, I think it is important to remember, like, have fun. You're going to work your tush off, but have fun and find your people. Um, you know, my latest has been, I love humanity. I don't always like people. <laughs> so find your safe people because it's confusing. You know, as we've talked about, there are certain huge lessons of decision-making and ethics. Like these are top tenors that, I don't remember taking a class in, um, but when you have your safe people, uh, colleagues or older mentors or whomever, you have a safe container to just allow yourself to ask the important questions because we have to ask them. You know, that's that reflective part. So, you know, learn how to listen to your own questions and answers, get familiar with yourself write yourself permission slips and it's okay. We all screw up real, real hard. I, you know, my ratio of screw up to success. Oh, not good. Not good. But I have improved on my recovery. When I goof up, I can recover quicker. And so I'm not, I know I'm going to goof up. I mean, hell I fall walking up steps. Like I, like I'm a goofhead, but I'm okay. Cause I trust my recovery and I'll ask for help. Always remember the me is connected to the we. And do not lose sight that what we do impacts others. Even when they've lost sight of what they do impacts us. 
be the better person always because we have to sleep well at night. So, I mean, that, those are like golden rules. What you do for work, I don't care, you know, contribute, have fun, you know, do something exciting, try new things, all of that. Speak your truth always, um, but allow a process around all of that and contribute. I'm going to say that word a second time. I think that actually matters, whatever that means. Yeah. I have no measurement to that. You know, I hope that we all find ways to contribute that we can feel good about with ourselves in whatever shape, whatever shape that uh, takes. Oh my God, minute to, you know, I don't, I, I'm not the kind of person that's going to do a huge thing in the world. I'm not going to be your next Oprah. But every day I probably do a few little things here and there. If it's as small as, you know, and one of the things I love in the winter and in Vermont for wherever listeners are, it's real cold. <laughs> like it just snowed last week. And there'll be days where I'm walking my dog in the morning and he'll just lift a paw because it's frozen. Mm -hmm. And without thinking, I take off my warm glove and I hold his paw. If that's my contribution for the day, that's a win. You know, so no yardstick on that. Yeah. No, I love that. Just just hold the dog's cold paw. One yeah. of the things we, one of the like running City of Bridges high school jokes is is like what um, what slogans could we put on T-shirts um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that are both sort of tongue in cheek, but also capture some of what we do, like city of bridges, high school, maximizing inefficiency, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> um, but I, I, there's gotta be one that's about like just holding that cold pot. We also have a lot of dog lovers at the school, so it would, yeah, it would speak to their hearts. Yep. Yep. You can pass that one along, see how they like but, it. But how do you find those important, special people? I have no idea. You know, I don't think, there's an app and I don't think you can put it in the classified. I think it falls much to the other question. That's like your ability to know and recognize. Mm. And so my people, they're not judging me. My people are asking me provocative questions. They're calling BS when they're like, what? No, no, no. I'm going to push you on that. And they, in, in a respectful way that it's not offensive, that I can feel in my heart of hearts, they want good things for me. If I'm not in the room, I know they have my back, mm -hmm. whatever that means. And some of those values that I mentioned before, they probably have a good dose of too. Mm -hmm. You know, good sense of humor, good mind, wanting to contribute, uh, the sense of fairness and advocacy and a just world matters to them, whether in a classroom or in a boardroom or on the floor, like wherever it is, they're doing the good fight too. Um, they tend to be my people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So again, it's about being able to recognize. Um, although if there is an app, we should talk about that offline. There's some money in there. <laughs> that's a cool, that's, that's a million dollar idea right there. Yeah. Yeah. Someone asked me recently what my personal mission statement was. Mm. What? Am I supposed to have one? Damn it. How have I gone this long without a personal mission? Oh, I feel so bad. And very quickly it came to me, I'm like, my personal mission is to guide people toward their truths so they can live an awakened life, whatever that means. So to some of these really awesome questions that you're asking, I keep answering you with like being present and awake to notice your people, the decision, the da, 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 da. And so I think that, I think my mission statement's showing up today. Yeah. I formed one. <laughs> I don't know when I was 15 or 16, 
-hmm. if I knew what I was going to, I certainly didn't know what I was going to do. Um, but I think I thought it was going to be a a much clearer path than it turned out to be. Um, I think that's really important to highlight and even worthy of repeating like, Oh, there'll be twists and turns and surprises. And that is not measured as a failure. That's how it's supposed to be. And that's another one of those, like, no one tells you that. Like, it's totally supposed to change. I don't think we have a society that you go work for IBM for the next 45 years and go home. Like, we just don't live that way anymore. No, we don't. But we still um, pretend that that that's what success looks like. Um, Crazy TV shows telling us so. (laughs) Well, I don't know if I ever told you, I got into K-12 education because i um i finished in december at oberlin and mm-hmm. uh my future wife Paige, who you know uh still had like just a couple of classes to take um and so at the time if you had a pulse and a bachelor's degree in the state of ohio you could substitute teach and okay. i was like oh sure this sounds like fun um and so i started substitute teaching and you know had no intention of being a school teacher. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, you know, maybe I'd go to graduate school. Maybe I'd, I don't mm-hmm. know who knows. Um, and fell in love with it. You know, you know, one day mm-hmm. I would teach kindergarten and the next day, like, you know, senior fitness or AP physics and then fourth grade math. Um, and I, I not only loved it as a way to spend my days, like I loved working mm-hmm. with young people and, but I also, found a way that I felt like I could make a, a positive mm-hmm. difference in the world. Yeah. Um, but it was yeah. totally by chance. It was like, how That's am I going to the river? Yeah. How am I going to pay the bills while Paige finishes these couple of classes? Substitute yep. teaching. Why not? Um, and it was, you know, one of those That's awesome random choices that then put me down a different path. The rest. Yeah. 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 And you know, I told you after college, I ski instructed that's teaching. Some of my greatest yeah. teaching tricks came from, you know, those instructors at, you know, coming down the hill with the little ones and bitter cold weather. <laughs> but I knew I wasn't going to keep being a ski. I just wanted to do it one year. Check did it. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's nice. I like that. Yeah. I think we all need to be a little kinder to each other that if people shift career, like we're not judging it and where's our curiosity, you know, for me to have gone from masters to counseling to mortgage banking and wall street then back into human service, into higher ed, uh, that that could be looked upon like, whoa, is she stable? And versus like, here are the themes of my career and they show up in different places. Why mm-hmm. would that be a problem? But I, you know, I thank goodness I didn't fall prey to those criticisms because I heard some stuff versus like, no. No, life is short. I'm doing amazing things. I am me in each one of these environments. And here's how I contribute to positive change. Yeah. But some of that takes knowing yourself too, right? If you're going to say I am me in all of these um, different spaces, because that's what I love about Mm. this story for young, for anyone, for any human being, you know, eight to 80 or zero to 105. It doesn't matter. Sperm to Um, worm is what I like to say. (laughs) I'm going to use that one. That's good. Um, is is that if you can know who you are mm. then and that's your sort of guidepost whatever 
um, things mm. you do along the way have a, a sort of truth and meaning to them. A hundred and ten percent. Like I, I think that's a really important point. And I think maybe I'm talking off the top of my head here, but when you talk about truth and joy, if you have a sense of yourself, you certainly have a lot of room for other people. And that feels mm. good. You know, when you, who are my people, people that make me feel like I belong. And those people are rooted in knowing themselves well. They're not perfect, but they know themselves well. You know, I joke my mom, if I had a TV show, it would be about her and it would be called Perfectly Lolly. Like she just doesn't make apologies for who she is. Real comfortable. And that puts everyone around her at ease because that's her. So the knowing, you know, that's that me and we thing. Mm-hmm. In the biggest scale, me, we, and then it, the system of which you're a part of. But all those connective pieces, I think, are really important to check in. We move fast, too. You know, I, COVID aside, and I'm sure when this wraps up whenever, we'll pick our pace back up. But when I talk about going on the cushion, it's because I go at a fast pace. Ooh, I'm a maniac like everybody else. I've spilled more cups of coffee in my lap while driving than I'm going to admit. <laughs> just going to allude to the possibility that could occur. So I have to consciously carve out time to sit still and reset and refill and con- be contemplative or reflect on something or just unplug. Um, that's what keeps myself knowing current. Cause I change. You know, yeah. 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 So can I ask you one question about that? Because like we, you know, we have mindfulness on a daily basis in okay. at city of bridges um, twice a week and COVID has sort of thrown this for a loop a little bit. Um, yeah. But twice a week we have, uh, people come in, Fitzhugh, who was actually in season one of this podcast, uh, comes on Wednesday mornings, and Adam, uh, oh, sweet. who was last week, comes Friday mornings. Um, last week when this was recorded, this will air later. That sort of practice is you know, something that we believe in and uh, you know, I think has real merit in helping people to do lots of different things. I'm not going to say what. Because I think that's a question that I'm going to ask you is what, what has that brought to your mm. life, that practice um, that I know is an important part of what you do? Yeah. You know, when I said in college, I put together my own uh, major as the short version being, a, you know, study of human consciousness. I think that began my fight for mindfulness. Mm. And then when I worked in mental health and wanted to use it as kind of an antidote to all the stress my team was experiencing because it did really hard work. Um, they loved it, but other clinicians in the organizations were like, what? Hmm. And so I love, and I've gotten to have a hand in some of this as a fellow, uh, three summers, a fellow researcher. Uh, Mind and Life Institute is a really great organization of which now there's many uh, that have studied the physiological aspect of contemplative practices, showing really giving merit and empirical data to stress reduction, uh, immune system improvement, learning capacities, this, that, and the other. So uh, me, like everybody else, I like those things. I I don't mind decompressing. I don't mind like uh, quieting some crazy loop in my head so I have room and more concentration capacity for something, a, a paper I might be writing or a speech I might be preparing. So there's that level of it. There's another level um, 
I don't really care at this age if people consider it spiritual or not. Those I'm not really hooked on those words one way or another. But leaving the physical dense um, application of mindfulness study and moving over to more esoteric or invisible, you know, it's what allows me to kind of, I had a boss say it this way, allowed him to see the angel speaking behind the person. I don't know my belief system on angels or not, but that notion of like things are bigger and if we slow down, we might hear more. And the idea like we are bigger and there is more. Um, I like that. And if that settles me somewhere between the two, some kind of compassion and some kind of wisdom for my life to turn, then that continues my, there's some consistency for me to continue being okay with being a goofball and welcoming to diversity around me and having a smart mind that can think through strategic problems and get to resolution or, you know, tell everyone just to be quiet and look out the window because there's murmuration of birds that are just stunning on the, you know, right in front of the window, you know, being able to move in all those directions. Mindfulness has um, kept the edges sharp Mm. and it also has on some sharp edges properly rounded them <laughs> you know like i want to i want to give both sides so um th- yeah and, and so has age and maturity and hard knocks and some growth and not taking yourself so seriously you know i think some of the classic pictures of practitioners are people with half smiles going on because they're like oh right right <laughs> i was pissed about that <laughs> or that was my reaction wow and when you can have some you know, humor brought back onto yourself. It's a little lighter load to carry. Yeah. And if to teach the kids that, and you know, that's that program I was talking about and their educators and administrators and then parents and guardians. I mean, I, I would love to live in a, you know, mindful community and I don't mm-hmm. mean a monastery. I mean like a whole darn town, but you know, you're, you're We're watching it now with COVID. I don't know where you are, but I take daily walks Mm-hmm. And although, you know, everyone's covered and you know, can't really see anything but their eyes and you can see if they're smiling or not. But that moment where people just sidestep off the curb and give each other space for respect, it reminds me much of when an ambulance goes by. Mm-hmm. And no matter what's happening, people move over. I think that's the greatest moment of humanity, by the way. I hate that it's because someone's hurt. But when an ambulance goes by, it's just people do what's right without thinking. It's the hand covering the the dog's paw mm-hmm. um and so you know this fantasy of a mindful community in my mind like uh, we're seeing it with covid and when we take daily walks now i know some towns are re- reacting differently and i you know i don't need to go political on that but when those moments occur they're beautiful expression of being present yeah. which i think mindfulness cultivates i and i don't in any way want to not acknowledge the pain and the suffering um, that this is bringing and also make sure to acknowledge my privilege in, you know, being able to mm-hmm. continue to receive a paycheck and have a, a roof over my head and, and food on the table. Um, but I, I have found a opportunity in this to really look at the, the way that we um, support each other within community. What are the things that we want to continue to do after this comes and goes in whatever form that takes. And what are the things that we want to leave behind and not continue to do? Yeah. And are enough of us on the same page that collectively we can say, I'm not going to drive my kid to 87 sporting events every weekend. 
we're going to take a little family time or downtime, or I'm going to have some quiet time. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a really curious place. I, I'm super, do, you know, I'm curious what job I step into next. And I'm curious what the world looks like, you know, and I would say you, you, you kicked off by like 15, 16 up until now, you know, there's, I don't know if there's an equal amount of time on the other side, looking ahead. Um, but being able to share some of this with you or, or this podcast is great reminder for myself. You know, mm-hmm. I have to apply it up or if I work somewhere new, where are those people? I have people in my life, my safe mm. people, but also new organizations who are the right people. You know, I have to apply the same principles. Um, and I love the framing of if you're a young person starting out on the path, is there anything, any lessons to share? But I think equally to remind ourselves, you know, we've been on the path for a little while now. I've got some gray going on here that those lessons don't go away. We're right. still people the whole time through. So, you know, they're as current and fresh for me at blah, 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 age as it would be for a 15 or 16 year old about to, you know, step off and jump in or anywhere in between. So, um, just kind of want to acknowledge that I, I'm speaking for myself as well. This isn't some wise wisdom and I'm pontificating to the, to anybody like, Oh no, I'm listening to every word I'm saying. It's important to hear for a young person to look at someone established. I mean, I've had executive positions. I've been department chair of a college, you know, PhD by, by some check marks, I look established. Mm-hmm. And I think just breaking that notion like now, no one's ever, we wake up fresh and new every day. So, you know, anyone looking up at those people, like, yes, there's experience. I have some wisdom, but I'm also, you know, miss the boat often. So just the idea, like, Mm-mm. we're all bozos on the bus doing the best we can. Right. We're, you know, it's, it's one of these things we both have children um, and to, to like realize that we're the grownups now. You know. <laughs> yep. Oh, you come across that family photo and you see your parents. You're like, my God, I'm older now than they were in that picture. Oh, boy. That's a different view on things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I have a question for you. I like to ask people, you know, we all have like that little inner voice. I don't necessarily call it the voice in our head because that can sound (laughs) diagnosable. Um, But what's the age of the voice in your head? That's a great question. I think there, it's. I think there are a couple different ages of the voice of, of okay. the voices. The voices in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it gets slippery real fast. Um, bec- because there are points in time um, when I'm very un I'm very unsure of myself, and that that whole notion of um, like I'm the grown up now. Uh, sometimes there's a voice in my head that is still very much the the 15 or 16 year old, which is going like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Why are these people listening to me <laughs> all the time? <laughs> yep, yep. Um, yeah. Like, I, I, why do you people think I have any idea what I'm talking about? Because I'm still just figuring it out. Um, and I also have times where, um, I don't know, I still might be, <laughs> the answer might always be 15 or 16 because there's a confidence that comes at that age as well. Uh, yeah, there's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> invincible. Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's a well-balanced one. 
So maybe that's the answer. Uh, and I thought they were well, two different like ages, but yeah, I thought it well, was two different ages, but it might just be one. True. And it's also when you ask your questions of the age group looking ahead, you mm-hmm. come back to the 15, 16. That's interesting. I mean, it's true. Like I think of music, um, that, you know, the, I, I certainly appreciate all sorts of, uh, music from different genres and mm-hmm. modern music and things like that. But the, you know, when I was 15, 16, I was a, a punk rock kid. And um, the the stuff that still, like, hit, hits me the hardest on an emotional level is mm. that stuff from, uh, you know, when I was 14, 15, mm. 16 years old. Um, and granted, that was, you know, passionate music anyway. But, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I think that there's some sort of something about that um, as you're sort of forming your identity, um, maybe I'm stunted, but uh, you know. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think so. But it's it's a fascinating just reference point for us as we're talking about self awareness and just to pop that through. You know, my age is like an eight year old, mm. and you know, I, of course, I live the life of an adult, but every once in a while, just there she is, and. It's kind of fun. Yeah, that was my question for you today. I love that. This was such a lovely conversation. I mean, one, it'll be an awesome episode that people will enjoy. But two, it's just so nice to catch up and chat. Yeah. Well, you got me all excited. I think I interrupted you more than I'm supposed to. I don't know how these things work, so I apologize for that. No, it's great. It's a conversation. Okay. All right. Well, Well, keep me posted. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Kim. As I mentioned at the beginning, We Make the Road by Walking is a production of City of Bridges. Please give us a five-star rating, a positive review, share the podcast with your friends and neighbors. It really helps us out. And if you have a story you want to tell, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. The music for We Make the Road by Walking is made by Eagle Moose, which is Kelly and Chris Miskus. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next week. Talk to you soon.